Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Tonight's event is IWP's 24th annual Pearl Harbor Day lecture in remembrance of Pearl Harbor. This evening, we'll be hearing from Dr. Dove Zakheim. Dr. Zakheim is Senior Advisor at the Center for Strategic International Studies and Senior Fellow at the CNA Corporation, a federally funded think tank. Previously, he was Senior Vice President of Booz Allen Hamilton, where he led the firm's support of US combatant commanders worldwide. From 2001 to April 2004, he was Under Secretary of Defense and Chief Financial Officer for the Department of Defense. And from 2002 to 2004, he was also DOD's coordinator of civilian, civilian programs in Afghanistan. He lectures widely and provides print, radio, and television commentary on national security policy issues domestically and internationally. He blogs on the Hill and the national interest. Dr. Zakheim, welcome and thank you for joining us this evening. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I wanna open actually with an apology. I normally uh, don't speak, not even from notes or anything else, but I felt that a lecture like this one deserved uh, a lot of work. And I'm going to speak from a prepared text. And uh, again, I apologize for doing so, but I hope it'll still be worth your while. Um, this day next year will mark eight decades since the Japanese launched a successful surprise attack against the Pacific Fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor. And President Franklin Roosevelt uh, rightly described it in his December 8th speech to a joint just session of Congress saying, and I quote, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, end of quote. And so it, well, and so it has been. But the attack that killed 2,403 people, wounded 1,104, destroyed or damaged 188 planes, eight battleships, three light cruisers, three destroyers, and four other ships thereby and thereby crippled the Pacific fleet offers lessons for the future of American security that still ring true so many years later. Surprise attacks rarely come as a complete surprise. When they succeed, it's often because of a lack of preparedness, poor decision-making, or no decisions taken at all. Before turning to the future, which after all is the subject of this talk, I'd like to underscore the assertion I just made with some of lessons from the past. Some took place in the years preceding that attack, some took place years afterwards. On June 22, 1941, Adolf Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa and thereby broke Germany's treaty with Stalin's Soviet Union. Three million German troops attacked the Soviet Union on a line from North Cape to the Baltic all the way down to the Black Sea. The Nazi forces, like those of Napoleon in the previous century, reached the gates of Moscow before exhaustion, poor logistics, and bad weather halted their advance. But it need not have gone that far had Deputy Prime Minister Andrei Vyshinsky heeded the warning that Britain's ambassador to Moscow, Sir Stafford Cripps, 
had passed on to him on April 11th, and a further warning that Winston Churchill sent to Stalin about a week later. Stalin's neglect of that warning and failure to make any strategic moves to blunt the German advance led to the near disaster that followed for the next two years. It's been argued that Stalin suspected that Britain was trying to draw the Soviets into a war they could avoid, especially as the British were suffering serious military re reverses in Southeast Europe. There may also have been another reason. Just over a year earlier, in March 1940, Stalin had signed a peace treaty with Finland, bringing an end to what has been called the Winter War. Although the Finns had given the Soviets a bloody nose, it was clear by the time the treaty was signed that the Soviet forces had the upper hand. A recent book that's appeared in Finland argued that Stalin signed the treaty because he had received intelligence about an Anglo-French plan called Operation Pike that called for a joint attack on Soviet oil fields in Azerbaijan in order to disrupt Soviet fuel shipments to Germany. But even though the German forces found detailed plans for Operation Pike after they'd successfully conquered France in May 1940, no such operation took place. Nevertheless, Stalin could only have been suspicious of British intentions, especially coming from Churchill, who was a known anti-communist. So Stalin didn't react until it was too late. That the Soviets had a difficult time defeating the much smaller Finnish army involved more than the fact that the Finns were fighting on their home turf. In 1937, just two years before the Soviets attacked Finland, Stalin had liquidated his top generals, notably the brilliant Marshal Mikhail Chukhashevsky, the reformer General Iona Yakir, and the Chief of Staff Alexander Yegorov. Their replacements simply did not know how to manage their forces effectively. In particular, Tukhashevsky, like the Nazi general Heinz Guderian, who later was very successful in France, understood that mass tanks enabled the offense to bl blast through opposition, what came to be known as the Blitzkrieg. But the Soviets employed tanks in Finland as if they were artillery pieces, with a single tank assigned to each infantry unit. The absence of good operational and tactical planning was therefore equally a major contributor to what should never have been a close call for the half million strong Soviet army. Ironically, it was only three years later that the Soviets, led by a new cadre of commanders, won the biggest tank battle in history, the Battle of Kursk in July and August of 1943. The French army employed tanks more effectively than the Soviets in 1939, but not that much more. Though the tanks compared well with their German counterparts, the battle doctrine employed by the French military was slow-paced. Tanks were assigned for infantry support, very much like, in fact, they had been used in World War I. The French did not field separate tank divisions like the Nazi Panzerwaffe divisions, because, and because their tanks were integrated with infantry, the French were unable to respond quickly to German blitzkrieg combined arms tactics. So not surprisingly, just as the Soviets initially misread operational advantages the tanks offered them, so did the French misread the power of combined operations employing armor and offensive airstrikes. The critical turning point in the 1940 Battle of France was German armored penetration of French forces, notably in the Battle of Sedan, combined with unprecedented air attacks by the Luftwaffe. Unlike the Soviets, the French were unable to overcome their adversaries and France fell in just over six weeks. Now there was one French brigadier general who did appreciate the potential of armored warfare. 
1934, he published a book entitled Vers l'Armée des Métiers, Toward a Professional Army, which proposed mechanization of the infantry with stress on an elite force of 100,000 men and 3,000 tanks that could drive around like cavalry. He published a second book four years later entitled La France et son Armée, France and Her Army, repeating many of the same ideas. The French military high command thought little of him or of his writings, but two days after the Germans attacked in May 1940, he was given command of an armored division that scored one of France's very few battlefield successes before the country went down to defeat. Now Charles de Gaulle, the author of those two books, is remembered for leading the free French and later on for restoring that country's glory. But the fact that his ability to think outside the box jeopardized his prospects for promotion is an object lesson in the dangers of operational conservatism. Let me move to another example. To the weeks prior to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor also demonstrated the terrible consequences that could result from a poor res response to intelligence and poor strategic and operational planning. Two naval war games, one in 1932 and another in 1936, proved that Pearl Harbor was vulnerable to an attack. Still in all, the State Department urged Franklin Roosevelt to move the fleet from the East Coast to Hawaii to deter the Japanese, even though by doing so, it increased the fleet's vulnerability. And more immediately, on November 27, 1941, the Navy Department warned Admiral Husband Kimmel, Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet, that a Japanese attack was imminent. The War Department issued a similar warning to Gen Lieutenant General Walter Short, who was the commanding officer of um, Hawaii's apartment, of the Army, excuse me, uh, Hawaii De Hawaiian Department the same day. Kimmel's only response was to send two carriers to Midway, but he did it not to protect them from an attack, but to prepare an offensive against the Japanese. And Short's reaction was no better, probably worse. He was fearing sabotage by the Japanese Americans living in Hawaii, and so he massed all his Army aircraft together to better to protect them, and by doing so, he created an easier target for Japanese warplanes. The successful Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was, was therefore a result not only of American misreading of intelligence, but of a combination of strategic and operational failures as well. Having spoken about those failures, let me turn now to the 1973 Yom Kippur War. In this case, there was an initial intelligence failure as the Israelis had developed a false sense of security regarding an Egyptian attack. President Anwar Sadat had expelled the Soviets from Egypt the year before, and his forces trained for an attack across the Suez Canal, but those stationed on the canal itself remained pretty much quiescent, and that's what led Israeli intelligence to conclude that no attack was imminent. Also, Cairo mounted a disinformation campaign that led Israeli military leaders to conclude that the Egyptian military was poorly prepared and suffered from maintenance shortfalls. When Egypt began a series of exercises in September 1973, the Israelis dismissed them as just maneuvers and nothing more. There were intelligence warnings, there always are, uh, but these accurate warnings came from junior officers and they went unheeded just like the Gaul's ideas about tank warfare went unheeded. When the Egyptians attacked on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, even, and that's when many, even many secular Israelis attended synagogue and Israeli preparedness was at its lowest, the Israeli civilian leadership was caught completely by surprise. 
that the attack was coordinated with Syria and plunged Israel into a two-front war underscored the seriousness of the threat to Israel's existence. Now, while the initial, initially successful Egyptian attack represented an intelligence failure, the Israel Defense Forces Chief of Staff, General David Elazar, had ordered a partial mobilization. And on October 5th, the day before the Egyptian attack, he did ask for, and he got, and he received permission to call for a full mobilization of Israel's reserves. But just to show how the Israelis still didn't really get it, on the morning of October 6th, six hours before the actual attack, Elazar asked for permission for a preemptive airstrike against the Egyptian forces, kind of like the airstrike that essentially broke the back of the Egyptians and the Syrians in the Six-Day War in 1967. But Defense Minister Moshe Dayan, who was a war hero, and Prime Minister Golda Meir denied him permission. And that enabled the Egyptians to cross the Suez Canal successfully. And so what had become as an intelligence failure was compounded by leadership in action that almost led to total defeat. It was only days later when American supplies flowed to the forces, Israeli forces in the field, that the Israelis were able to recross the canal, ultimately encircle the Egyptian Third Army and save the country itself. Now my last case is that of 9-11. At the time, uh, I was Undersecretary of Defense. What happened at the World Trade Center, at the Pentagon, and in the Pennsylvania countryside was once again a result of poor intelligence. In this case, poor intelligence coordination and a failure on the part of the intelligence community to provide timely warning to White House decision makers. Lots of books written about that. And of course, the 9-11 Commission dealt with that in great depth. Several of the hijackers were known to be in the United States, but warnings of their whereabouts never went up the decision-making chain. As the then Attorney General John Ashcroft told the 9-11 Commission, and I'm quoting here, the single greatest structural cause for the September 11th problem was the wall that segregated or separated criminal investigators and intelligence agents, end of quote. As an outgrowth of the Commission's findings and recommendations, the George W. Bush administration created both the Department of Homeland Security and the National Counterterrorism Center. Unfortunately, the NCTC uh, hasn't done so well recently, and I'll mention that again uh, shortly. As we look to the future, how can we apply the lessons of Pearl Harbor and the other cases that I've just described? In the first place, we have to ensure that we have an accurate sense of the magnitude of the threats that we might face and be certain that our intelligence estimates reach decision makers in timely fashion. The Israelis underestimated the nature of the threat they faced. Our own decision makers never received accurate and timely intelligence of a terrorist threat that some in the White House sensed was really imminent. We've got a multiplicity of intelligence services. We must ensure that they all really do talk to each other. And as I briefly noted a moment ago, it's sad, but the NCTC has been severely under-resourced in the past few years. That's not a good sign for the future. We also need to ensure that all our intelligence capabilities, both human and technical, are adequately resourced and directed at those targets that most threaten our country. And when I mean human resources, I'm not just talking about the people in the intelligence community. 
They're critically important, of course, but also our diplomats who are equally valuable as sources of intentions and developments in unfriendly states. We talk about so-called whole of government. We talk the talk, but we rarely walk the walk. Our State Department, even more than the NCTC, is severely under-resourced, and it suffered from recent purges that have deprived it of some of its most capable diplomats. We have to restore state to its leading role as a vehicle of American soft power, behind which our hard military, and for that matter, economic and financial power, can stand ready if to act if called upon. Now, in planning for the use of our hard power against potential adversaries, first thing we have to do is take them seriously in a way, for example, that the Israelis did not take the Egyptians seriously. We have to do so, we do so with, re with respect to China, but that's primarily in the context of its activities in the East China Sea and the South China Sea. It's especially important that the new Biden administration also maintain the support for Taiwan that that island democracy has received over the past several years. There is more bipartisan congressional support for Taiwan than there's been for decades. In fact, I would argue that there's probably more support for Taiwan than there's been since the Taiwan Relations Act was passed in the 70s. But it's not at all clear where the Biden administration will stand on the Taiwan issue. I'm not criticizing them. I just don't know where they stand. If the new administration is serious about promoting democracy, as we're told they are, then Taiwan, a truly democratic state, is a good place to start. Our current posture vis-a-vis -vis Russia is that it's a near-term threat. Once again, I think we're making, we're making a serious underestimate of Russian capabilities. It's simply not good enough. And the reason I say that is that the Western weapon systems that Moscow has been developing under Vladimir Putin's leadership are going to operate for the next decades, not for the next five years or so. We've got to maintain our vigilance with respect to potential Russian predations in Southeast Europe and the Balkans and Russian penetration of the Middle East and, of course, the Baltic states. We also must approach any resuscitation of the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action, in other words, the Iran nuclear deal, with great care. Not so much because we shouldn't have an agreement. It's simply that Iran's conventional missile threat to its neighbors is far more real than its nuclear threat, and it has to be reined in. That's not going to be easy to do. And we have to maintain a sufficient deterrent to dissuade the Ayatollahs from expanding their already aggressive activities throughout the region. So by all means, we can see if we can come up with a nuclear deal, but we have to recognize that that's the beginning, not the end. If we are to preserve our military superiority over potential foes, we have to sharpen our focus on the relative advantages and disadvantages that we possess in relation to them. To that extent, we have to change our entire approach, I think, to wargaming. All too often, we either skew the results or ignore them entirely. We have to conduct our war games that realistically depict potential enemy strengths as well as their weaknesses. We have to game Iranian and indirect attacks on our interests. We have to game Russian gray zone operations with little green men. We have to game Chinese attacks on our infrastructure, including our banks and hospitals, as well as more conventional operations that we might face. 
we must not only gain our latest advantages, advantages in both the realms of space and cyber, but game all aspects of our high-tech capabilities realistically. When will our new systems actually become operational? How capable can we expect them to be? All too often we hype what we're about to do and then we don't do it. And if we do do it, we do it far later and far more expensively than we thought we would do it. We also have programs that are so highly secretive that they're not gamed at all. And they aren't included in command post exercises or field training exercises. But if they're so secret and they're not made available to and understood by battlefield commanders until the day of battle, how certain can we be that those commanders will trust them, put their trust in systems that previously were totally unknown to them? We have to think about how we get around this dilemma. It's a crucial one. And as I say, it's not enough to game high-tech capabilities. We have to ensure we actually have them and deploy them in timely fashion. I think it's universally understood that our acquisition system remains far too unwieldy and our program managers are far too risk averse. We have to reform our personnel system to reward and promote only those who, like Charles de Gaulle, have demonstrated a willingness to experiment and take calculated risks, even if those experiments sometimes fail and the risks are to their careers. We have to ensure that our personnel benefit from continuous education in the realm of cutting edge high technology, either by attending courses in the best institutes of technology this, this nation can offer, or by spending some time in the commercial high tech sector, and I underline commercial high tech sector, or doing both. Doing so will go far toward breaking down the walls between government and the commercial high tech world of Silicon Valley, of Research Triangle, Austin and Boston, and so on, because those walls remain much too high. And finally, we have to recognize something else. We don't face our enemies alone. We're very fortunate to have allies who not only have committed themselves to fighting alongside us, but actually have done so at the cost of lives and treasure in Afghanistan, in Iraq, the Sahel, and elsewhere. I saw them in Afghanistan. I saw them in Iraq. These are the same young men and young women that we send out there. Their lives have been just as much at risk and their losses have affected their families and loved ones just as much as our losses have affected our people's families and loved ones. So if we're gonna work alongside allies, fight and die alongside allies, and they're prepared to do that and have done that, then we must ensure that our technology meshes with theirs that our war games are truly coordinated with theirs, that our exercises demand as much from them as from ourselves, which unfortunately they don't often do. And we must expand our combined operational deployments, especially in places like the North Atlantic, the Baltic and the South China Sea. So to demonstrate to potential adversaries, the strength and the resiliency of our relationships. And we must consider that a net assessment vis-a-vis -vis those adversaries should include economics and finance because they too are hard power and that hard power can be wielded in conjunction with our allies, both in Europe and in Asia. Our adversaries don't have the network of allies and partners that we do. 
that network represents a huge political, economic, financial, and military advantage. And we shouldn't exploit it to the fullest. And it's not clear to me that we always do. Why should we take all these steps? Well, potential adversaries can become real ones. And we can't afford to take initial body blows as the Soviets did in June 1941, or for that matter, in the winter of 1939, as we did six months later at Pearl Harbor, as the Israelis did in 1973. High technology has accelerated the pace of warfare to the point where victory or defeat can be determined even more quickly than the outcome of the 1967 Six-Day War. We cannot take chances with adversaries like China and Russia, whose forces outnumber ours, whose technological gains have been great, and in some aspects, such as hypersonics, currently do outstrip ours. I recognize, who doesn't, that we have serious domestic problems that we must attend to and attend to urgently. First and foremost, we've got to defeat the coronavirus. Equally important, we have to revive our economy. These two are not mutually exclusive. We have to do them both. We have to modernize our aging infrastructure and we have to protect it. We have to, do, we have to address climate change in some fashion. We can debate how we address it, but we have to address it. But in addition to all of that, we have always to remember that as former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates put it, the enemy does get a vote. We can't control what an adversary might try to do and when they might try to do it to us, to our allies, to our partners. On the other hand, if we are really and truly realistic about the threats our potential adversaries pose, if we are ready to face those threats, if we are ready to demonstrate that we can defeat those threats, we can go a very long way to ensuring that our posture will successfully deter aggression and do so for many years to come. I'll take your questions, thank you. Great, thank you. Um, we'll now move to Q&A. Um, so if you have any questions for Dr. Zakheim, please feel free to comment in the Q&A tab at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, we do have a few questions here. The first question, could you address the Turkish invasion of Cyprus in 1974, detailing the influence of several intelligence agencies to either sabotage or exploit vulner vulnerabilities of the parties involved? Were the Greeks misled and did that influence, uh, impact, that influence impact the outcome, which remains unsolved to this day? Well, to the best of my knowledge, uh, part of the problem, of course, was that uh, we were pretty much at odds with the Greeks at that point, as I recall. Um, we, we had real friction with the colonels. I think the Turkish uh, government exploited that. The other problem is that you really had a divided island. Um, you had a Turkish minority, but it wasn't tiny by any means. And of course, you had a Greek majority. Uh, and so when the Turks invaded, uh, they had a, a receptive audience. In some ways, uh, I don't want to compare them exactly to Nazi Germany, but when the Nazis moved into the Sudetenland in 1938, they had a welcoming audience, the Sudeten Germans. It's very, very difficult to head off something like that when there are 
thousands of people who are ready to welcome the people coming in. The world reacted in, in a way that hasn't changed ever since then. Nobody has recognized the uh, Turkish Federal Federated Republic of Cyprus, I think that's their official title, uh, since 1974, except for Turkey. And there have been effort after effort after effort to, solve, to resolve the crisis, um, sometimes getting close to it, sometimes not. Uh, can it be resolved? Yeah, ultimately it can. I mean, we thought for years that you could never resolve the crisis in Northern Ireland, and then you got the Good Friday Agreement and uh, it's held up. So these things can come to an end, uh, but uh, certainly it will be very, very difficult. And it's gonna be especially difficult because of current Turkish behavior. And that's a whole other issue. If somebody wants to ask me a question about it, I'll be happy to start talking about Mr. Erdogan. My next question, um, do we need a new national security act? If so, what should, what should that new structure look like? I don't know if we need a new national security act per se. I think what we need is a strong uh, national security staff that really does bind together those various elements of whole of government that I was talking about. Look, um, we, could, we could strangle Russia, maybe even China, uh, economically and financially. Uh, these are, that's why I call them hard power. This is not trivial stuff. This is not soft power at all. Soft power is, oh, I don't know, the International Republican Institute or the Democratic Leadership Institute, you know, groups that talk to uh, civil society in, in countries that are either not democracies at all or losing their democratic nature. Economic and financial power is real power. And if we work with our allies to, uh, on, in these areas, then you know, you're bringing in German financial and economic power, which is really very powerful in addition to ours. You could bring in Japanese power and so on. So it's not so much a matter of changing the National Security Act as it is managing the very powerful tools that we have. And I would argue that uh, We've done some of that vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Uh, have we thought it through? Have we wargamed it? Do we have plans in that respect? Do we have contingency plans? Uh, I'm certainly not aware of them. They may be there, but I'm not aware of them. The next attendee question is, you mentioned the importance of reinvigorating the Department of State. It could be argued that the international degradation of the department's morale has been so extensive that a phased approach needs to be taken to rebuilding their expertise. Do you concur? And if so, what aspects of state's operations would you prioritize for rebuilding? And most important, how might we interest the best people to join our diplomatic service? Well, first of all, we still get a lot of applications for the Foreign Service. Um, I think one thing we could do is, is, if the new administration wanted to do it, is say, welcome back. There's no reason why we couldn't hire back some of the terrific diplomats that have left out of frustration. Once you do that, you're going to reinvigorate morale overnight. And then you're going to uh, create uh, an impression of the State Department uh, that is far more vigorous, far more active, and will be far more attractive to young people. Look, I mean, right now we're in a, in a situation where we can't even leave our homes, much less, much less our country. But young people like to travel. I may not be so young anymore, but I still like to travel. And I always did. And most young people like to travel. 
and the State Department gives you that. It's a challenging profession. Uh, it, it has its rewards. And I don't think we'll have a problem getting the best and the brightest uh, to join state. But I think if we were able to welcome back some of those who left, that would be a real, uh, uh, I would say, Philip to uh, our recruiting potential. Thank you. Uh, the next question that we have from an attendee is, do you think that China's Belt and Road Initiative pose a threat in the Western Hemisphere? And if so, where? Western Hemisphere, I don't know about. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative hasn't been as successful as the Chinese would like us to believe. It's had its, it's, had its problems. And I think, again, um, you know, it, it's been more a question of the Chinese filling a vacuum that uh, we created uh, by leaving the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership in particular, uh, the more active we are on the world economic stage with our allies, the less attractive China's gonna be. Look at China's record in Africa, for example. They come in, they bring in their own people, they don't hire anybody locally, and then they strangle the, the, the local government and uh, use their economic power to get political gains and sometimes military gains. Um, we don't operate that way. And our European allies don't operate that way. Japan certainly doesn't operate that way. Australia doesn't operate that way. So it seems to me that if we were to work in conjunction with our allies, as opposed to uh, keeping them at arm's length, I think we offer a far more attractive proposition to countries than, than the Chinese do. Next question um, we have here is, you underscored or underestimate of Russian capabilities and the broadening scope of Russian threats in Europe. What specific initiatives do you suggest the US and our NATO allies should take to upgrade our capabilities and better offset the growing Russian threat? Uh, well, the first thing I think is to increase uh, the pace of our exercises. Um, I think that we, we with our allies, uh, should continue to deploy, uh, should rather increase our deployments to Eastern Europe. I worry very much about Belarus and what might happen if, a, if one time after the Russians completed their exercise, they never left, and what that does to Poland, the Baltic states, as well as uh, the Nordic uh, Swedes and Finns, who are allies in all but name. They haven't joined NATO, but they work very closely with us. Uh, and so uh, more coordination, more exercises, more presence. And frankly, uh, again, as I said, there are other things we can do. It's not a matter of just pinpointing sanctions against individuals in Russia. It has a lot more to do with how we deal with Russia economically. Russia is essentially an oil and gas exporter. And one of the things we have to work out with our European friends is can they, get their, can they get their oil and gas from somewhere else? It's doable. It's not easy because of Nord Stream 2 and the German commitment to it, but it's doable. And without being bullies, because being bullies doesn't work. When you bully somebody and you corner them, they just fight back and become irrational. Uh, we shouldn't be bullies, but we should work with them and think through all the different means we have of telling Moscow you can work with us or you can work against us. If you work with us, we can do things together. For instance, nonproliferation, uh, climate change, a number of areas where we act, strategic uh, limitations. The Russians are as interested in that as, as we are. 
But if you want to work against us, don't think it's just going to be a matter of military exercises. We have a lot of other uh, arrows in our quiver, and we're going to work with our European allies to make sure that you feel the pinch of those arrows. I think there's more we can do. Another attendee asked, could you please name the Finnish book you've mentioned about the Operation Pike as the reason for Stalin to stop his offensive yeah. against Finland? I can't for the very simple reason it's in Finnish. And I was told about this by a very senior Finnish official. They've apparently, uh, they are looking to translate it into English. Uh, I certainly intend to buy it when it is translated. Uh, and I think that once it is, I suspect it'll be reviewed in a lot of uh, places simply because it has a very interesting message about how uh, the Soviets were dealt with. But no, I don't, I, if I had the Finnish title at the, tips of, at the tip of my tongues, I couldn't pronounce it anyway. Finland, <laughs> Finnish is one of the hardest languages to learn. Thank you. Um, bringing the topic just back to China, we have another question here from an attendee. Do you have any thoughts on China's attempts to bully Australia? What should the US government do or say, if anything? Well, we certainly should say that we're not going to stand for that. Um, maybe we should uh, look at what exactly it is the Chinese, the Chinese, for instance, want to uh, increase the tariff on Australian wine by 200%. Maybe one thing we can do is commit to, uh, if, I don't know if we have a tariff on wine. If we do, we should remove it. If we don't, we should buy up a lot of Australian wine. What we should do essentially is sit down with the Australians and say, how can we and our other allies, because it's not just us, how, how can we and our other allies, Asian allies and European allies, help offset this kind of Chinese behavior? It's doable. Maybe it means some sacrifices on the part of all of us, but it's worth the sacrifice. Look, the Australians and the Brits are the only two countries that have fought and died alongside us since 1945, since really 1941. Um, uh, there was a lot of opposition to the Australian participation in the Vietnam War, but they were there. There was a lot of opposition to, the, to British participation, and officially the British said they weren't participating, but in fact they were there. They have fought and died alongside us, and friendship goes two ways. We've got to help them. Next question um, from the from an attendee is, what do you think the emerging anti-Iran alliance between Israel and principal Arab states will have on Turkish policies? Will it drive Turkey closer to Russia to enable the Turks to enhance their power in the region? Well, I think if the Turks uh, try to get closer to Russia, I'm not sure it'll help them. For a start, Turkey and Russia are historic enemies. And uh, the Russians are pursuing a neo-Tsarist policy and the Turks are pursuing a neo-Ottoman policy. And the Ottomans and the, and the Tsars fought several Crimean wars against each other. Um, look, I, I think the real message that uh, Mr. Erdogan should gather in is that you cannot be a loose cannon in the Middle East because it's not just Israelis and, and uh, Emiratis and frankly, Saudis, um, because they all, all are actually the, the, the Arabs more even than the Israelis are, are absolutely livid about the Muslim Brotherhood. And so you throw Egypt in there, which is opposed to it as well, and Jordan, which has its issues with the Muslim Brotherhood. It's not just there, it's the Eastern Mediterranean as well. The Israelis, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Bulgarians, the Cypriots are all 
together. Look, look what Erdogan has done. He has restructured the Middle East by bringing countries together in a way that they haven't been together if and sometimes if ever. And so they, the Turks need to rethink their overall policy. They went from one extreme, which was, you know, everybody's a good neighbor, nobody needs visas, this sort of thing in the region, to this kind of behavior where they're messing around in Libya, by the way, shooting at Russians in Libya, um, messing around in Syria, uh, not exactly on the same page with Russia there either, uh, messing in Lebanon, messing in the Eastern Mediterranean, supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, Ultimately, it's all going to come crashing down on their heads. And the sooner they realize it, the better. Just kind of um, keeping the topic on Turkey, we have another question here. Um, how does uh, President Erdogan game the US administration after administration? He believes Eastern Med is his, despite objections by every international forum the US is a member of. Turkey is a member of NATO, which he has shunned repeatedly, aside from insulting the US as an ally. What strategy should the U.S. employ to contain or discipline Erdogan's behavior? Well, in the first place, I don't know that he's going to game the Biden administration. Uh, you know, the, the Biden administration, as I said earlier, is making a big, uh, a big deal about human rights. And so I don't think Erdogan's going to sit very well in, in that particular set of uh, crosshairs. Um, He's obviously alienating a lot of American friends and allies. That's not going to help them either. We have leverage over this fellow. Um, their, their economy is not what it was 10 years ago. And we can make life very difficult for their economy. Now, we shouldn't do it to ordinary Turks for the very simple reason. There are a lot of Turks who don't like Erdogan and are very pro-Western. We have to be careful about it, but we, we do have the power to, to really give him a hard time. So that's, that's number one. Within NATO, there's a problem. There, there's no article in NATO that involves kicking anybody out. We didn't kick out the Greek colonels. We didn't, you know, we never kicked out anybody. Um, there isn't any, anything about suspension either. On the other hand, France left the Integrated Military Command. Now that was voluntary, but you have a precedent there. Suppose we turned around to the Turks and say, you know what? We don't think you should be part of the Integrated Military Command until you get your act together wouldn't be kicking them out. It wouldn't be suspending them. It wouldn't be different from what France, and by the way, Spain also did at one point, but it would send them a really strong message. Uh, the EU, of course, wants to, has basically said, you're not coming in. And uh, the Turks, their attitude is, well, you've been telling us that we could come in for the last 60 years and we haven't, so what's the big deal? But NATO's another story. And so I think there are ways to pass messages and we do have leverage. And uh, whether it's us, the Germans, the French, and the French almost went to, to blows with Turkey in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, and were that to have happened, um, all EU countries, by the way, are committed to de defending each other. And that would have brought all kinds of people in against the Turks. I think the Turks need to be careful. Um, they are they're taking on a 500-pound gorilla, and they're with no insult to chimpanzees, they're more like a chimpanzee. Do you think that the recent Israeli Emirates diplomatic agreement will last? I think it will. Uh, I'm not sure that a new Biden administration will 
encourage any more of these agreements unless there's some kind of deal on the Palestinians. And, and I have a very, I have difficulty seeing Mr. Netanyahu or um, uh, Mohammed Abbas, uh, Abu Mazen cutting a deal. They've been so, they, <laughs> they've been very difficult to deal with each other for forever, practically, it seems, for a decade. And, and I don't know what's going to change now. Uh, but we're not going to, we, the United States, are not going to walk away from something that really is an inflection point in the region. And the reason I say that is that it's not merely recognition or flying flags. You've got businessmen in, in the Emirates learning Hebrew, for God's sake, because they want to do business in Israel. It, Shimon Peres, the late president and prime minister of Israel, had this vision of Israel being a kind of high-tech hub for the Middle East. And it looks like that vision is going to come to pass to some extent. Israel has a lot to offer countries that want to be sure that even if they don't make as much money out of petroleum as they once did, they've got other things to offer. Bahrain already doesn't have all that much money coming out of petroleum. And so that's a real incentive for Bahrain. But the Emirates as well. The Emirates are very, Mohammed bin Zayed is probably the cleverest leader in, in the Middle East. He has a real sense of, of direction where he thinks his country should go and a strategic sense. He didn't make this deal with Israel purely for F-35s. The F-35s were important. And I think, I feel very strongly that, you know, if we said we're going to sell them, we have to keep our word. One of the biggest challenges we as a country have is that other countries perceive we don't always keep our word. We should. Whether it's an Iran deal, which I didn't like, or an F-35 deal, which I support. We have to keep our word. But it was more than F-35s that drove this deal with Israel. It was a sense on the part of Mohammed bin Zayed that this opened up a completely new phase of Middle Eastern relations. It also sends a message to the Palestinians that maybe it is time to deal because the Arabs, particularly the younger Arab generation, is just tired of this stuff. They don't, they don't, they don't see the point. And they don't, they don't see why a deal can't be struck. And uh, maybe the Palestinians will get the message and maybe the Israelis will as well. Thank you. Um, the next question we have here is, who would best serve the new Biden administration as Secretary of Defense? Can you comment on the recent removals of Defense Business Board and Defense Policy Board members and their overall impact on the transition? Sure. I mean, I've written a piece in The Hill uh, making it clear that while there are several good candidates for the job, I think Michelle Flournoy is clearly the, 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 most, uh, the most talented uh, in terms of uh, defense analysis, in terms of managing inside the department. She's very popular. She's got a great personality. She knows her business really, really well. Uh, she'd make a great secretary of defense. Um, so that's my answer there. I mean, there clearly are others. There are other names floating around, some more appropriate, some less appropriate. There are good people out there. But if I were President Biden, I would choose Michelle Flournoy. But I'm not President Biden, so I don't know who he's going to choose. Uh, the, you know, I created the Defense Business Board in 2002. And it was meant to be a nonpartisan board that was going to help the department become more effective and efficient. And in 18 years, that's what it did. It had some very, very talented, capable people on it. Um, it right now it's led by, was led rather, by Mike Baer, uh, uh, 
who was former Undersecretary of Commerce, um, knows his, his Pentagon inside out, uh, was on the Army Science Board, really understands uh, how the, the Pentagon works. And one of its uh, major players was Arnold Panaro. And anybody who knows anything about defense knows Arnold Panaro. Um, and so all of a sudden, all these capable people uh, are just thrown over the side of the ship. They don't even get to walk the plank. They're just thrown overboard. To me, it's madness. And then the policy board, which is meant to, you know, these boards don't order people around. They, they're, not, they're, they're not line managers. They provide advice. And it's up to the secretary, the deputy secretary, the undersecretaries to take the advice or leave it. But they provide advice. And if you're going to get advice, you want the best advice you can get. And you want to get it from a, a variety of perspectives. Because if everybody says the same thing, then you're just talking to yourself. So why in God's name do they throw Henry Kissinger and Madeleine Albright off the policy board? You may not agree with Madeleine Albright. You may not agree with Henry Kissinger. But for God's sake, look at the accumulated knowledge they have. You ought to listen to what they have to say. I remember years and years ago when I was very junior in the department in, in the early 80s, I took a man named Bob Comer, Robert Comer, uh, on as a consultant. And Comer had been very, very uh, active in the Vietnam War. He was uh, very partisan. He had very strong views. Anybody who knew him knew, knew that you didn't get a mixed message from Bob Comer. You, you got what he thought, usually in a very loud voice. I was asked, why did you do that? Why did you take on a consultant like Comer? And I said, very simple. I want to hear what he has to say. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe he'll find something that I should think about. I don't have to do what he says. He's not my boss. That's what the boards do for the department. They provide information, insights, analysis that otherwise might be missed. And what, look, look at my, what I was saying for the first half hour. We do miss things. We miss on intelligence. We miss on judgment. We miss on acquisition. We miss on military preparedness. If these people can help us, even one iota, it's worth it. So why can them? I, I cannot fathom that decision at all. Well, thank you for answering all these questions that, we have, that our attendees have for you tonight. Um, I'll have one more question to ask you before we um, close tonight. Uh, your presentation has repeatedly revolved around the importance of acting jointly with allies. Um, how can we quickly, or how can we quickly restore our alliances um, with the next administration, and whom should we focus on first? Well, um, first of all, we should, where we do have allies that we've worked with in the Trump administration, we should continue to work with them. That's for sure. But look, we've had real difficulty uh, with the Germans, to some extent with the French, even with the British. We've ignored some of the smaller countries entirely. The first thing we need to do is change our tone. We shouldn't be dismissive. You know, Admiral Nelson, the great British Admiral, basically said he, Britain didn't need allies. They ruled the waves, it didn't matter. He won Trafalgar, got killed in the Battle of Trafalgar, but he won Trafalgar. He's got a statue in Trafalgar Square. 
he was right. The British didn't need any, certainly not any naval allies. During the Cold War, our, our attitude was pretty much the same. The Allies were nice to have, but we kind of figured, we'll take care of the Soviets. Whatever the Allies bring in, they'll bring in. And our planning reflected that. We didn't depend on Allies. Well, where are we today? We have maybe 300 ships. We really don't even have 300 ships. But we've got commitments in, these, in the Atlantic, the Pacific, now the far north. The Arctic has become a, an area that we're concerned about. The Indian Ocean, back to the Mediterranean with under 300 ships. How can we do that without allies? The same applies to our Air Force. The same applies to our Army. We need the allies, not because they're nice to haves, but because we need them. So the first thing we need to do is make it clear to them that A, we understand that we need them, and B, that we appreciate them. Bullying them is not the answer. For instance, they have already committed to 2% growth in their defense budgets relative to the, their gross domestic products. Now, quite frankly, um, you know, the smaller countries, if they increase to 2%, it's not the same as if Germany increases by a, a half percent, simply because the German economy is so much bigger. But we have to reach out. We have to tell the smaller countries, we're delighted with what you're doing. And we have to tell the Germans, hey, look, we're not going to pull our troops out of Germany. Not so fast. We appreciate the fact that you're prepared to give us host nation support in the event of a crisis. How do I know that? I negotiated that agreement. So I know exactly how much they're going to kick in. And it is not trivial. And we appreciate the fact that the, the trajectory of your spending on defense is going upward. We have to change our tone, number one. And as I say, we have to ease up, I think, on how we deal with technology transfer how we deal with their role in war games. We cannot do things on our own and then expect others to just follow along and do exactly what we tell them without them having a part to play. And we're seeing that, by the way, right now with the, uh, the, some of the Middle Eastern uh, Arab friends of ours who are pretty much saying, you want to make a deal with Iran? Fine, but you better consult with us this time. Mr. Obama didn't do that. We're not going to live with that again. Allies are not nice to haves. They are important. They are critical to our success. And they give us a degree of leverage, as I said in my remarks, that Chinese, Russians, Iranians, they don't have. What formal alliance do the Russians have? Or the Chinese? Or the Iranians? What country is bound, and I mean bound, to come to their defense and risk the lives of their young men and women? in order to defend Russians, Iranians, and Chinese. When you had the Warsaw Pact, <coughs> Eastern European countries had no choice. If you try to pull away, the Russians marched into your capital with tanks. It's not the, that, it's not the way it is today. And so we need to appreciate what we've got, which is a lot, make the most of it. And frankly, I think if we reach out, they're ready to welcome us. All the Europeans I talk to say the same thing. Where have you gone? We need you. 
Thank you. I appreciate this great discussion and all your um, great answers to our attendees' questions. Um, I think that's all the time that we have for this evening. Um, but I'd like to thank Dr. Zach Heim for joining us and, and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Zach Heim. Appreciate it. Thank you, and everybody, please stay safe. Thank you.